Hey everybody, this is Aaron Harris, host of the Football Odyssey podcast. And today we're going to be talking about the game that started it all, Rutgers vs. Princeton, 1869. Now in 2019, America celebrated the 150-year anniversary of the first intercollegiate football game between Rutgers and what was then known as the College of New Jersey, which would eventually become Princeton University, on November 6th, 1869. The game was played in New Brunswick, New Jersey, and resulted in a 6-4 Rutgers victory in front of a crowd of around 100 fans. Clearly, we're living in different times now. A century and a half later, the College of New Jersey is now Princeton University, and college football is without a doubt the most popular collegiate sport in America. The most drastic change since this time, however, is the game itself. As a matter of fact, the game played back in 1869 would be unrecognizable today and for the most part, incomparable. It was a game that had no line of scrimmage. It featured 25 men per side and it prohibited players from carrying the ball and from passing it with their hands. There were no touchdowns either for the only way to score was to kick the ball through your opponent's goal. But as we know today, the term football is universal and is used to describe a multitude of different sports from not only various parts of the contemporary world, but from sports of the past as well. In the Han Dynasty of ancient China, for instance, there existed a game known as Suchu that was played exclusively with the feet and involved kicking a ball through the net. The ancient Greeks played a game that was later adopted by the Roman Empire, in which players were to drive the ball past their opponent's goal line through passing, running, and kicking all while enduring and evading hits and tackles from the defense. This game would come to be known as Harpistum. Flash forward to 1175, and the first mention of football in English literature came in William Fitzstevens's book, Descriptions of London. 400 years after that, football is now used to describe two separate forms of ball sports, the kicking game, that we in America know as soccer, but to the rest of the world as football, or specifically association football. And then it was also used to describe what is called mob football, which was a very violent game in which an unlimited amount of people would congregate in the masses to carry an inflated pig's bladder to the opponent's goal by any means necessary. The goal could either be on one end of the village, or if they were playing in a completely separate village, it would be on the other, it could be in the entire separate village where they would have to place the ball for the goal. As time went on, however, many English educators favored and taught the kicking game because it was a much more civil way of keeping the students uh, in shape when they weren't studying. So the carrying game, because of its violent nature, was suppressed for a long time. And legend has it that it had a resurgence when there was a student at the rugby school named William Webb Ellis, who disregarded the rules of the kicking game, picked up the ball and ran with it, thus giving birth to the game of rugby football. But most historians now acknowledge that this story is more of a folktale than a historically accurate occurrence. Obviously, there were plenty of games, and still are plenty of games, that are produced that can be considered a form, or at the very least a predecessor of football as we accept it today. Some were codified and are now played internationally, while others were just simply local traditions with flexible rules and never really gained much popularity outside of the town or the village in which it originated. 
There is one sport, however, that does fall somewhere in between these two distinctions. And this game is known as Ballone. B-A-L-L-O-W-N. Ballone. All one word. Now, according to a former football coach and a highly respected sports historian, Park Hill Davis, Ballone translated to batting of a bladder. And it was a unique game because the only way to advance the ball was to bat it with your fist to another teammate. It's first thought to have gained popularity at Princeton around 1820. And as mentioned before, Princeton wasn't the name of the college yet, but for simplicity's sake, we'll continue to refer to it as Princeton. And how the game got to Princeton is unclear, but more than likely, it was the English who brought it over, who came over for work opportunities, or it could be brought back from American students who actually went over to England to study one of the universities and just brought the game back with them. Regardless, ball loan was becoming a favorite intramural pastime at the university, and eventually Princeton, Princeton decided to incorporate the kicking game as well, so it became a very multidimensional sport. It was becoming very popular, and it was even spreading to other parts of the Northeast. But ultimately, the game would lie dormant in the wake and the immediate aftermath of the Civil War. A few years after the Civil War, however, ball loan was revived at Princeton, and there were rules that were added to further develop the game. Scoring was accomplished by kicking the ball through your opponent's goal, and the first team to six goals would be declared the winner. Additionally, the rule stated that a player could catch the ball on the fly, and that would be known as a fair catch, and if he completed the catch, he was entitled to a free kick. Now, I'm not sure if many of you watch Australian rules football. I don't, want, I don't watch too much of it myself, but I've seen a little bit, and I find this description very similar to watching an Australian rules football game because they don't kick the ball on the ground like they do in soccer, but they do hit the ball to one another with their fists and they punt the ball, and they also go for what's called a mark, which is an uncontested catch. And once they complete the mark, they're able to, they're awarded a free kick. So there might be a direct lineage between these games, or it might just be a simple case of simultaneous uh, innovation, but that's a different topic for a different time. But at Princeton in the 1860s, Ballone was back more popular than ever, but they weren't the only school playing it. For their crosstown rivals, Rutgers University was also playing some form of football. And it's unclear if exactly if it was exactly ball owner, if it was just an offshoot of the London rules football. But nonetheless, it had a popularity in the Northeast. And Rutgers, who had a little bit of a rivalry with Princeton, at least in baseball, they didn't play each other in many other sports, but they had played a few baseball games, so they had established a healthy rivalry. And now Rutgers wanted to take a stab at Princeton at their own game. So in 1869, they officially proposed a three-game series to Princeton, or as they refer to them, as the men at Nassau Hall, which to this day is the oldest building at Princeton, and at the time it was built, was the largest building in colonial New Jersey. Before the game could commence, the two team captains would meet to negotiate the uh, rule differences. Both team captains have been described not only as capable athletes, but as very studious young men. In fact, Princeton's team captain, William Stryker Goumer, would one day become the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of New Jersey, while William J. Leggett, the captain for Rutgers, 
became a distinguished, a distinguished council member of the Dutch Reformed Church. And these rule differences primarily revolved around the fair catch and the free kick. Rutgers did not acknowledge that part of the game, and Princeton obviously did. So what they agreed to do is for the first and third game, which, be, which would be played at Rutgers, would forbid the fair catch and the free kick. But the second game at Princeton would allow it. Now that the terms were set, the first game was ready to be played. And it was around 3 p.m. when each of the teams would take the field. And as mentioned before, there's about 100 spectators who gathered around the field to watch the match. And it actually cost no admission fee. And by all accounts, Princeton had the size and the height advantage compared to the short and small athletes of Rutgers. Now, each team selected one of their 25 to place himself immediately in front of the opponent's goal. And fittingly enough, he was known as the captain of the enemy's goal. The remainder of each team was divided into two sections. The first section was known as the fielders, and they were assigned to a certain area of the field, and they were not to leave that area. It's unclear if the rules forbid them from leaving that area by virtue of an offsides rule, or if that's just what their responsibility was during the game. Now, the other group was known as the Bulldogs, and they would move up and down the field, kind of like what you see in midfielders if you uh, watch lacrosse at all. But they weren't only responsible for moving the ball, however, as you're about to find out. Because I have with me a favorite book of mine that I want to read a couple passages from, because it does a great job of describing the game as it was played. and It really paints a good picture in your head of what the game was like. The book is called The Saga of American Football, and it was written by Colonel Alexander Wayand. And the Colonel, Colonel Alexander was the former team captain of West Point back in 1915, and he was also the teammate of Dwight D. Eisenhower. And this book that was published in 1955 was a result of long interviews that he conducted in research as Alexander Wayne was becoming a prominent sports historian in the mid-century. This is what he had to say about the game. Princeton kicked off. A Rutgers player dribbled or babied the ball along the ground with short, controlled kicks while his teammates formed a wall around him. A goal was speedily scored, but history is silent concerning to whom belonged the distinction of making the first score recorded in American college football. Not a Princetonian had touched the ball during the advance. Goumer instructed a giant rusher, J. Edward Michael, to disregard the ball and to charge into the Rutgers mass and scatter the interference. Big Mike succeeded so well that Princeton tied the score. Again, history is mute as to who made this memorable score. But the Princetonians were far from mute. They had appropriated the, the Sis-Boom-Yah-Yell of the 7th Regiment New York National Guard. Now they rendered it with great vigor, but the noise did not disconcert Rutgers's Madison ball. By a long backward kick with the heel, he delivered the ball to George Dixon, who shot it through the Princeton goal. The visitors soon enough evened the scout. Michael obtained the ball and kicked it to Gumer, who, with a compact mass of teammates around him, dribbled it through Rutgers' goal. Rutgers' fast, nimble players, along with carefully placed kicks and well-organized team play, gained an advantage and scored twice. Stephen Gano made one goal and an unknown hero the other. 
It was during the struggle for the second of the goals that Big Mike and George Large of Rutgers in a race for the ball near the sidelines crashed into the fence. So terrific was the impact that the fence with its load of yelling students was thrown to the ground. Large was slightly dazed and time was taken out to enable him to recuperate. Until his dying day, he laughingly boasted that he was football's first casualty. With the score 4-2 in favor of the home team, a Rutgers man became confused and tried to kick the ball through his own goal. Before the ball could be kicked out of danger, Princeton obtained it and drove it through for a score. Encouraged by this unexpected assist, Princeton scored again a few minutes later. The score was again tied and excitement was very high. The press commented that there was much unnecessary sparring among the players. Leggett rallied his men, and Rutgers scored the two goals necessary to bring victory, 6-4. to four. Now, as you could tell from this description, it seems that the flow of the game was very similar to soccer, how they baby the ball or dribbled it and with short and precise uh, kicks. And what's interesting and what really gives the distinction that could be seen as a direct lineage to modern-day American football is how he describes that the Bulldogs or his teammates had formed a compact mass around him, which can obviously be seen as a sort of precursor or predecessor to offensive and defensive lines. And it's also very similar to what you see or what you used to see in American football kickoffs, where you would have the three men in front of the kick returner on a kickoff would clasp their hands together and form a wedge to create separation from the oncoming tacklers for the runner. So you can see how the game did bear some similarities. So there are many people who argue that the game was more closely resembled to soccer. But while that is true, it's not completely accurate for you did see a lot of the physical attributes that you do see in football today, especially in terms of what they call interference, but what we know now is blocking. And down the road, we'll talk more about other games that influence the development of the modern American football game. Uh, but in any event, it's still interesting to see this primitive, this primitive form of football and blocking that would come to be a crucial dimension in American football. And with the first victory awarded to Rutgers, the rematch occurred exactly one week later at Princeton. The game, as we mentioned earlier, would allow fair catches and free kicks. And there's also an eyewitness account, a man by the name of Henry Green Duffield, who was a Princeton graduate and actually witnessed this rematch as a boy. He also claimed that in addition to the rules that we've already laid out, that the players were also allowed to dribble the ball as it was in basketball. Now, there's no secondhand account from uh, any source to verify this. But if it was true, it's kind of interesting because going back to Australian rules football, that's actually something that the players are allowed to do. Uh, they run with the ball and they have to bounce it every 15 meters. But again, there's no secondhand source to confirm this. And anyway, that rule isn't really such a crucial part of the game as much as the free kick or the fair catch because Princeton, who was very accustomed to this style of play, would go on to dominate Rutgers 8-0. to zero. But the series would have to break even because the third game would never materialize. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how the inaugural intercollegiate football game was played. Again, it wasn't the first game ever played, 
but it was the first played between the universities. But even if the game didn't contribute much to the current form of football, it did initiate the college frenzy over football and establish a tradition of rivalries, and in some ways did contribute to the or serve as a a primitive form of what we see as interference again today known as blocking. And a fun fact on this topic, I'm sure a lot of you have seen the painting of this contest, and if not, I've posted a link in the description. But the painting is called The First Game, and it was painted by a man named Arnold Freeberg, who had painted primarily religious and patriotic portraits, and actually also did storyboard paintings for Cecil B. DeMille for the Ten Commandments in pre-production. And he was approached by Chevrolet to paint this portrait as part of Chevy's 1969 advertising campaign that featured a collection of paintings, with each one capturing one of the greatest moments in the 100-year anniversary of college football. It sounds like it would have been a good Mad Men episode, if you ask me. But that's all we have for today. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter and Instagram, or reach out to me in the contact section of thefootballodyssey.com. Not sure what the next topic is going to be, but one thing is for certain, there is no shortage of topics to talk about in the Football Odyssey. Until then, take care, everyone.